The Lord be with you. As we uh, prepare to receive God's Word, we first need to uh, come to the point in our liturgy for the prayers of the people. And uh, I'm like you, two mass shootings in 13 hours in our country. We need to pray. The, the hard part, how do we pray? I mean, what? Why does this keep happening? What is going on? All I know to do is to keep praying God's presence and to lament. So would you join me, the prayers of the people, make this prayer, these words, your prayer. Let us go before the Father, before the throne. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are just so troubled, so burdened, and we don't know what to say. We don't know how to pray about this. It just keeps happening. Lord, we're, we're troubled. We pray for the hundreds now from these shootings who have lost what is most dear to them, their loved ones, some children. We pray your comfort. We pray for those who have been wounded and are in the hospital and have either short or long roads of recovery ahead of them. We pray that you would bring healing to their bodies, skill to the medicine, and Lord, just intervene in each of their lives to help them right now, help them to recover. We also pray for their emotional and trauma wounds. We pray for the first responders, people who've been on scene or are on scene, having to deal with this evil, this violence. Please walk with them, the doctors, the nurses, the government officials. Lord, we pray for the faith communities and the nonprofits who will come alongside now and walk the long journey of recovery. Give them resources and ideas and vision and endurance to walk with those in pain. Pray that the gospel, the name of Jesus, would be powerful in Dayton and El Paso. Lord, we lament with David, the king. Psalm 4, answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief for my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. 
Tremble and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill our hearts with joy. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. And God's people say together, Amen. 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 A noted Western philosopher was first introduced to the world in 1926. This philosopher was outside, in fact, he was sitting on a log one day when he heard a buzzing sound. Puzzled, he began to ruminate. If I hear a buzzing sound, it must be because someone is making a buzzing sound. And the only reason that I know of for someone making a buzzing sound is that someone must be a bee. ruminated some more. The only reason that I know of for a bee to be buzzing is to make honey. The only reason that I know of for someone to be making honey is so that I can eat it. Now, some of you have probably already guessed that this philosopher is named Winnie the Pooh. And I'm glad that the children are not in the room because we need to hold this philosopher's reflection to some heavy scrutiny. Winnie the Pooh is a bad bear. He is a pragmatic individualist whose vision for bees is only that they produce honey, not that they have a wider ecological purpose like pollinating flowers and plants that feed half the world. He is a quintessential consumer who thinks that bees exist only to soothe his churning stomach and boring life. He is a bear of very little vision. And poo vision is what's wrong with the world. One of his contemporaries put it this way, G.K. Chesterton, countless acts by millions of self-centered instead of God-centered individuals may reasonably be thought to be destroying the world. Welcome to Waterstone Serves. We are taking a break from our Songs for the Road Psalms series. Come back next week for the finale when we will talk about worship from Psalm 122. And by the way, it's been my experience that whenever we preach on worship, we usually move the sermon up in the order and spend time worshiping after. And those times of worship after we've thought about it are rich. So come back next week. Bring someone with you. Today, I picked a special text to talk about Waterstone Serves, about why we do what we do, sending a couple hundred people to, uh, to either donate or to be involved in shaping and changing our community. Why? 
This text, Nehemiah chapter 3. Please follow along as I read. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, the son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hasanaah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel, made repairs. And to, next to him, Zadok, son of Be'ana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshenai gate was repaired by Joida, son of Pasiah, and Mashulam, the son of Basadea. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place, and next to them repairs were made by men of Gibeon and Mizpah, Medaltiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of the trans-Euphrates. The word of the Lord. Sometimes, have you noticed, the Bible can be incredibly boring. Now, leading into this chapter, in the story of Nehemiah, chapters 1 and 2 is like a, an episode of Jack Ryan on Amazon Prime. Nehemiah got word from his brother that the remnant of people still living uh, in poverty in, in Jerusalem were barely surviving, but even more he heard from his brother that the walls of Jerusalem, 70 years, had still been knocked down, just lying there, untouched. Now, that broke his heart. That was a disgrace to his people. So Nehemiah was so moved, he took action. He actually went to his boss, who happened to be the most powerful man in the world, named King Artaxerxes. Nehemiah was chief of the security service. He went unsummoned into the king's presence, which was potential death, and he asked if he could have a leave of absence to go to Jerusalem to look at the walls and to begin rebuilding the city. Not only was he surprised to find that the king was favorably disposed to give him a paid leave of absence, but even more, to give him all the money for the repairs to the wall. Wow! But the danger was not done. Chapter 2 talks about Nehemiah going under the cover of darkness at night. Why? Because the city, having no civil authority for decades, was uh, owned by fighting warlords. And Nehemiah's life would be in danger if word got out that there was these foreigners back claiming that this was their home city. So under the cover of darkness, he goes and he surveys the walls and gets the the lay of the land for the repairs. Now we come to chapter 3, and it's suddenly as if everything shifts into slow motion. I mean, why couldn't they just say, well, we rebuilt the wall in 52 days, and life went on. Have to name all these people, name all the gates, all the work. Why? Well, the answer to that question is the answer to why we do Waterstone Serves. There's three answers. First, the kingdom of God, that is his rule and his reign, that is what's going on in this world, what is God's agenda, requires a lot of work. 
And second, God's agenda requires a lot of people. And lastly, God's agenda is a lot of work and a lot of people fueled by a huge vision. That's why we do Waterstone Surfs. That's why chapter 3 of Nehemiah is in the Bible. That's what we need to talk about for a few minutes. Let's talk about the kingdom of God being a lot of work. Some background. Bring you into Nehemiah chapter 3. In 586 B.C., the saddest day in the history of Israel, after centuries of God through his prophets pleading with his people, come back to me, come back, you've turned on your back on me, make my agenda your agenda, come back, Israel was let go. By the way, that is usually how God judges individuals and nations, by taking his hands off them, by giving them what they want. And he gives Israel what they want, to be unfettered, unanchored from God. And what they get is judgment. His name was King Nebuchadnezzar, the empire of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar comes in with his armies, knocks down the wall, burns the temples, takes all the furnishings uh, to Babylon, but even more, takes all the people except for the poorest of the land and scatters them throughout the Babylonian empire for what is called 70 years of captivity, the exile. Daniel 5 tells us, though, and by the way, it's just always amazing how reliable the history of Scripture is. But uh, in, a, in an overnight period, uh, the Babylon fell, and the Medo-Persian Empire took over. And as Jeremiah prophesied, the ruler, Cyrus the Great of the Medo-Persian Empire, was favorably disposed to the people of Israel. In fact, in 539, he issued a decree that all of the Jews scattered throughout the empire could return to Jerusalem. In fact, we have a portion of this degree preserved in a museum. It was found in 1878 in the country of Iran. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. And it mentions the decree and the release of the Israelites to go back and resettle in Jerusalem. And over a 10-year period, 50,000 Jews resettled in Jerusalem. During this 100-year period, God gave Israel three fantastic leaders. One was named Zerubbabel, and he came and rebuilt the temple in 516. Another one was named Ezra. He was a priest, and he restored the worship uh, within the city of Jerusalem. That was 458. And then in 444 BC, we have Nehemiah, who came, this government official, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It was a big gig. It was a lot of work. Let me just give you some, st some stats on it. First of all, remember that the walls were leveled by Nebuchadnezzar and then lying fallow for 70 years. Can you imagine a field or a, a, even a city or a, a piece of land that had just been let go for 70 years, what they walked into? This wall was at its base eight feet wide. It was anywhere from 16 to 24 feet high. It was 40 sections. It was 10 gates made out of wood with metal framing. It was five towers. It was two miles in circumference. Are you picturing this? The amount of work? Whoa, and they did it without two guys, one named John Deere and one named Caterpillar Diesel. <laughs> Amazing work. They did it in 52 days. I mean... Friday night, 
I was with Paul and we shoveled a pile of mulch and I was done. I was done. 52 days they built this wall. The kingdom of God is a lot of work. But what is it with the wall? Why? Why all this effort, this energy, these resources invested in a wall? Well, you need to understand in the ancient world, walls were big deals for cities. Two reasons. One, the condition of the wall was the condition of your people. The condition of your wall spoke to the reputation of your God. It would be parallel to what we know here in America. Imagine that our Capitol building was taken over by drug dealers and the windows were smashed out, the doors were burned, and the, the place was burned. What would other nations think if they came and saw our Capitol burned and raised? They would think, man, you guys aren't doing so well, are you? And in the ancient world, they would think, boy, your gods, weak. They either don't care or they're asleep. You see, what the wall was, was a statement of your faith, the health of your people, and the strength of your God. A wall was reputation. Secondly, though, inside, a wall spoke of the health of your people. A wall operated as a police force, controlled who came in, who go out. It, it, it defined your, the, the boundaries, your streets, and it enabled you to say, these are my people, these are our streets, we keep them safe, we provide for those who are struggling. You see, a wall on the inside reflected God's care for the people who lived inside. So on the outside, it was about God's reputation. On the inside, it was about God's heart and how he cared for his people. That's why Nehemiah, here it is, sacrificed his time, his life, to rebuild God's community. The kingdom of God is a lot of work which calls us, in a word, to sacrifice. Let me define sacrifice. Sacrifice means to put God's honor and his love of people above your own interests. I want to say that again. Sacrifice means to put God's honor and his love of people above your interests. Sacrifice is the duct tape word of Christianity. It holds everything together. Sacrifice is what Jesus did for us. It was his vocation. It was his calling. We see it all over the New Testament. Verses like Mark chapter 10, where Jesus, in his own words, if we have Mark 10. Nope, that's Annie. Mark chapter 10. There we go. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And then John chapter 15, Jesus sharing his vocation, his calling. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Sacrifice. We sacrifice and work on the wall to build God's community because it's what Jesus has done for us. So our sacrifice is his 
honor. And so we deny ourselves, we pick up our cross, and we follow him. Sacrifice. But it's not only God's honor that motivates us to sacrifice. It's his love for people. God calls us to sacrifice to become channels of his love to others. And so we sacrifice. We, for instance, sacrifice to make relationships work. Now, don't misunderstand me. If you're in a relationship and there's abuse going on, the most loving thing you can do is report that abuse and get out of that relationship and make that person, the abuser, face their consequences. That's love. That's the best thing you can do for them. But if you're in a relationship where there's no abuse, then you are called, as Paul says, as far as it depends on you to make that relationship work. So what do you do? You sacrifice. Sacrifice what? You sacrifice having control in that relationship. You sacrifice your refusal to forgive. You sacrifice your reluctance to have a fierce conversation and define the terms of that relationship. You sacrifice to make that relationship work. Sacrifice. We also sacrifice to show God's love to people. Here we are, all of us, most of us in this room are the wealthiest people who's ever lived in all of history. No matter what you have in your wallet this morning, you have more than most people in the world now, and you certainly have more than most people who've ever lived. We come into this, and we understand what God's asking us to do, sacrifice. I'm asking you, is your level of sacrifice increasing at the same level of, as your accumulation? Sacrifice should define us with our material resources. Would you put that word over your giving? Sacrifice. To change your lifestyle. Lastly, making sacrifice real is what fueled the early church. In a word, hospitality. Nehemiah, here in Nehemiah, we get to chapter 5, we, we begin to see that from a government worker's salary, Nehemiah is feeding 150 workers a night from his own wallet. Jesus, how much of Jesus' teaching, how much of his storytelling was around a meal? How about you? We've been punching neighboring all year. Have you had your neighbors to your table yet this summer? Have you had your neighbors over? Have you fed them? Have you had conversation with them? I'm telling you, it makes the church influential. Rodney Stark, who teaches at the University of Washington in his book, The Rise of Christianity, Christianity did not grow because of miracle working in the marketplaces, although there may have been much of that going on, or because Constantine said it should, or even because the martyrs gave it such credibility, and they did. It grew because Christians constituted an intense community, able to generate the invincible obstinacy that so offended the, the Roman ruler, Pliny but yielded immense religious rewards. And the primary means of its growth, here it is, was through the united and motivated efforts of the growing numbers of Christian believers who invited their friends, relatives, and neighbors to share the good news. Neighboring is the force of the church. Inviting. Sacrifice. So, the reason we do Waterstone serves, the reason Nehemiah chapter 3 is in the Bible is because the kingdom of God is a lot of work and therefore requires sacrifice. 
Secondly, the kingdom of God is a lot of people. You read through uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, and uh, you see people are named there either by their, their given name, their village, or their profession. The professions are an interesting study in Nehemiah 3. There's perfumers. No one's quite sure what they did. There's goldsmiths. There's guards. There's merchants. There's shepherds. There's farmers. There's Levites. There's priests. There's all these professions on the wall together. There's the young and the old. There's the men and the women. There's the Jew and the Gentile. There's the rich and the poor. This is a beautiful picture of the diversity of the kingdom of God. There's a word for that. When all of the people, no matter where they're coming from, are pulling the same direction to build God's community. Do you know what that word is? Ministry. Ministry. Let me define ministry for us. Ministry means Using the gifts God has given us to serve others in the name of Jesus. Let me say it again. Using the gifts God has given us to serve others in the name of Jesus. Paul put, or Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 4. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. What are these gifts? Well, for, it's, it's your skills. It's your abilities. It's your experiences. It's your passions. It's sometimes divinely enabled vision and leadership ability to lead a group of people. Whatever it is, the Bible talks a lot about these spiritual gifts, this combination of what makes you, you, and it calls you to get on the wall somewhere, and the Holy Spirit will steer you and gravitate you throughout your life to where you should be serving. Just jump in where there's a need and the Spirit will lead you. But it's using whatever gifts you have to serve others in Jesus' name. You know what some of this is, I think, why we're hesitant at times to get involved in things like Waterstone Served or, or even a regular weekly ministry? It's because I think we've lost a sense of the power of serving in Jesus' name. I think we forget how powerful that service is, how the Spirit indwells that work. We get distracted by other things and other busyness. I was reading of a pastor this last week who was uh, doing his ministry, and he had to make a hospital visit. And he went in, there was just a woman, an uh, older woman who had just had surgery, major surgery, was flat in her back, it was, had been in there a few days, the husband was in there. And uh, the woman asked the pastor just before he was getting ready to leave if he, if he would say a prayer. And so the pastor, you know, grabs her hand. The husband stands by the bed. They're praying over this woman. And, you know, let's be honest. It was the normal, like, flowery pastor kind of prayer that, that we pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for to learn in seminary. <laughs> just prayed for the medicine and prayed for the doctors and nurses. But most of all, prayed that... God, that your spirit would just come into this woman's body and bring healing and strength and that you'd give her recovery. You know, blah, blah, blah. Finish the prayer. The woman, who'd been flat in her back for several days, sat up. She swung her feet off to the side of the bed, put her skiffs on. Husband gave her a robe. She's up walking around. The nurses come in. They're a bit troubled by all this. She's walking around. Pastor, I feel so much better. Pastor. 
Is this what healing feels like? Am I healed? They have this conversation. Everyone's happy. The woman released from the hospital later that day. Pastor gets back to his car, bows his head in prayer. Lord, don't ever do that to me again. (laughs) We don't know what to do with the power of Jesus' name. It scares us. We can't manage it. We're not used to it. The kingdom of God is a whole lot of work, which in a word means sacrifice. The kingdom of God is a whole lot of people, which in a word means ministry. All of this fueled by a huge vision. Now, the greatest enemy of huge vision is poo vision. And we have, in verse 5, a great example of poo vision. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 5. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Now, again, <laughs> seminary, you, you learn to read these books and articles, and you see that this, this verse has actually produced a lot of words on a page. Everyone's wondering, what's with the nobles of Tekoa? Why wouldn't they work? Well, there's theories. One theory was because it was a very dangerous time. As I said, Nehemiah had to come under cover of darkness, and when they began this work, the warlords were not happy who'd had ownership of the land, and so they didn't want to risk their lives. Others think that because it's the, what's emphasized in the Hebrew in word order is the nobles, which means they had this sense that this kind of menial work on the wall was beneath them. I mean, you would never see a noble of Tekoa with a hammer in their hand. They were either afraid to risk their life or they were afraid to risk their lifestyle. It kept them off the wall. Poo vision. I only care about myself. Contrasted in verse 8 with kingdom vision. Uzziel, the son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths repaired the next section, and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall, these perfumers. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought they were laying bricks. I thought they were making wooden gates. What do they think they're doing? Restoring Jerusalem. Whoa, do you know what that's called? Vision. We are not laying bricks. We are building a community. We are not building a wall. We are advancing God's kingdom. And the difference will get you on the wall. Do you know what vision means? Vision is a picture of the future which brings passion to the present. Christians have vision. Let me explain it to you in a couple sentences. The day after Jesus died, there were no followers. None. 
on Sunday the next day, there was a man who walked out of his own grave by his own power. He appeared to 500 people in the city of Jerusalem around those walls that Nehemiah built. There were 120 followers. And since that day, the walls have not been able to stop the church. Why? Because we have this vision that one day this same Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make all things new. He's going to settle every account. He's going to make the crooked straight. He's going to lift the valleys. He's going to level the mountains. He's going to make it all right. That's the picture of the future, which brings passion to the present. So every time we go and we show up at Open Door Ministries on Friday night, say, we're here. Why are you here? To give you a preview. That's why yesterday when we showed up at the Denver Street School to paint their classrooms, we're here. Why? To give you a preview. Why we played kickball yesterday with women who've been saved out of the sex trafficking world. Why are we here? To give you a preview. Jesus is going to come back and make it all right. But you get a glimpse now. You know, you begin to see this vision everywhere. You start reading. I was reading a great book called Range by David Epstein, who writes for ESPN, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. It's a very interesting book. But if you read it, what you soon discover is this guy's writing church history. <laughs> he tells about the, the Figlies del Coro. That's Italian for daughters of the choir. What happened is in the 18th century, there was a major revolution going on in the world of music as it was transferring from Baroque style to classical style. At the shaking center of this revolution were the Figlies del Coro. They were playing in Venice. They were an all-women cast ensemble playing uh, the, the most famous composers' music, and they were drawing luminaries from all over the world to hear their music, one of which was named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Have you heard of him? He was one of the primary influences on the French Revolution in 1789. Rousseau had heard about the Figli del Coro, and he came, and he came to one of their concerts. Now, you have to understand that when the Figli del Rosso played, they played in the church balcony behind a black cloth hung over a metal frame. So all that you could see was their silhouettes with the light behind them, and you had to turn around in your seat to even get a glimpse of them. Rousseau was frustrated. He said, so, so it's, it, the music is so beautiful. Why can't I see them? So he kept begging and badgering the church staff, and finally, after the concert, he was allowed to meet some of them. And this is how he described them in his words. Sophia looked horrid. Uh, Katina had one eye. Bettina was disfigured by smallpox. And he went on to describe the rest of them, missing fingers, missing feet. The reason no one wanted to see them was because no one wanted to see them. Rousseau, as you're about to find out, discovered that what this common factor with the Figli del Coro was that they were all the daughters of the brothel workers in Venice who had syphilis before they got pregnant and conceived children born with the impact of syphilis. And in the 
decades prior, these children, these babies, were either thrown into the canals or dropped on the steps of the church. And the church, as we are wont to do when we see a social ill, engages that social ill to, to start singing songs of hope. And they began what they called these hospitals of mercy. And there were four of them in Venice. And the hospitals of mercy adopted these children in the church. They raised them. Those that could be married were married, and those that could live on their own lived on their own. But one of the daily routines for the Figli del Coro was they had to spend one hour a day learning music. And out of that one hour a day were planted the seeds of the Figli del Coro. Now, you need to understand that many of the greatest composers wanted pieces of their music premiered by the Figli del Coro. You may have heard of them. Johann Sebastian Bach, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And one guy, his name was Antonio Vivaldi, in a six-year period wrote 140 concertos to be played by the Figli del Coro. And I'm telling you, that the church engages social ills so that concertos of restoration can be sung. And that's what we do. That's why that chapter's in the Bible. That's why we do Waterstone Serves and it comes to you. Have you made up your mind about what's really going on in this world? Have you? Are we just a piece of time with a name? Are we only worth, in the end, the $10 of minerals that are in our physical bodies? Is history just about who and what, but there's no why? Are we only here for the here and now? Or do we have a future because God has a plan, and he's working that plan? And whether it's the rise and fall of nations or whether it's the rise and fall of your life, do you believe that he has a plan? I tell you, the longer I'm 57 years old, the longer I live with God, the more convinced he, I am that he is a threat to me. <laughs> He's a threat to me. He is a threat to who I think I am. He is a threat to what I have. He is a threat to what I think I need. And you know that in the end, he will get all of me. In the end, he will get all of me. But you know what? He wants all of me now. And so he's always messing with my life, and he's messing with your life. And do you know what that's called? Wrestling with the sovereignty of God. And we wrestle, and I know some of you are deeply wrestling with what you perceive to be the choices God's made for your life. And you have to wrestle with that. Does God have control of my life? Does God have reasons for what he's doing with me? Does God still have my best interests at heart? What I want to say to you as you're asking those questions is that remember as a Christian you have huge vision. And at the end of it all, there is a God who, in a community of love, where the, as C.S. Lewis said, the serious business of heaven is joy. That God lives there always, and that's where it ends. But he wants to give you previews now even in the hard valleys, the deep places of life. So, 
it comes to this. The kingdom of God is a lot of work which requires sacrifice. The kingdom of God is a lot of people which requires ministry. All of it fueled by huge vision. I'm asking you, how's your vision? What's going on in this world? And will you face it with poo vision or kingdom vision? Let's pray. Father, I don't know everyone in the room, a lot of beloved faces, but I'm guessing there's any number of reasons why people are sitting in the chairs this morning. And I want to call out a few, Father, to your attention. First, there are those who came in this morning and they're struggling. Their bodies are racked by disease or poor health. They've lost their work. They've lost a relationship. They've lost a loved one to death. Whatever the struggle is, Lord, substance abuse, same-sex attraction, whatever is giving their soul such anxiety, mental illness, I want to pray that even today they'd have a glimpse of what's in front of them, always in front of them. At the very end, after this amazingly short time on earth, they get you. And I pray that that picture of the future would give them passion in the present to have a vision that sustains them. Nothing here is the last word. So hold them, Father, and show them again. And some here are sitting in these seats, and you're wrestling with significance, whether you, know, you, you work a job, but it just feels like you're laying bricks, whether it's just struggling to feel that you matter, that you're seen, that you're heard. Lord, those who are struggling with significance, show them the value of sacrifice and ministry in your kingdom. Show them that even their work contributes to the common good of the kingdom. Show them that anything they do in your name is powerful and remembered by you. So I pray for significance over those struggling with their worth this morning. And lastly, I want to pray for those who came in just seeking you, wanting to be closer to you, wanting to find you, wanting to become a Christian. Lord, would you show them. Let the church be the church, and may they find your love here. May they find you here, and may they find your love working through us to talk to them. So Lord, save them. May they call out to you today and find themselves home. In Jesus' name, amen.